Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott. And today we're going to talk about two really amazing books by a couple of guys from Livingston. One of them is Tim Cahill, and we're going to discuss his collection uh, of stories that came mostly from outside magazine called Jaguars Ripped My Flesh. So tell us about how you ended up in Montana and what, what that's meant to you as far as your Well, work. I always tell people that I ended up in Montana because as far as I knew, there were no warrants out for my arrest. <laughs> um, no, I came up here... Um, I think it was 1979, The Total Eclipse of the Sun. Oh, yeah. I was 12. I remember that vividly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I came up here to uh, do a story on The Total Eclipse of the Sun. Mm. Um, found myself in Livingston. Well, not by mistake, because there were a couple of writers from here who published in Outside Magazine. McGuane, um, uh, Yortsberg, I think, had done something. And Brodigan, believe it or not. Oh, is that right? Had yeah. done a few poems for, well, Trout Fishing in America. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and so I met these people here in my capacity as an editor for Outside, even while I was uh, doing the story. And I thought to myself, hmm. <laughs> huh. And the other author we're going to look at is one of our favorites, uh, guy named William Yortsberg, who died a few years ago. Um, and I think we're going to talk about more than one of his books, right? The Brautigan book and The Falling Angel? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. But So first of all, I wanted to, a uh, couple of shout-outs. Um, I wanted to thank the Montana Arts Council. We just found out they uh, gave us a grant to keep doing the show, which is a nice, nice little thing. And Drum Lemon Institute also Drum Lemon gave Institute us. also gave us some money. And I also wanted to uh, give a shout out to Aaron Parrott. I keep forgetting to do this, but Aaron won the uh, High Plains Book Award for his short story collection, Maple and Lead, a few months ago. And I keep forgetting to say, good job. Hey, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Man. Yeah. And, you know, now people, when they listen to this, they can say, who the hell did these guys think they are? We got a one legit writer here so hey <laughs> that's right yeah thank you yeah so uh you know last episode we talked about livingston and um we were kind of wondering who was first as far as like establishing that as a literary community in montana and we were speculating that it might have been Brodigan, but we had the opportunity to ask tim about that um and yeah and i was a little surprised to learn that um, Tom McGuane was the first yeah. 
of those guys to go down there, and Brodigan sort of followed him there. Yeah, Brodigan and Tim Cahill. And I, I happen to be rereading Tom McGuane's The Sporting Club, the, his first novel, um, and that's 1969. That's, oh, is it that long? Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I think it's interesting and worth talking about that um, Livingston became such a hotbed for for people in the arts, not just writers, but you a lot know, of artists and too. stuff. Yeah. And one of the things I, I really love about that community is that um, it feels a lot more uh, inclusive and welcoming than like Missoula does. So do you think living here has impacted your work? Yeah, I think it has in in this um, in this way. I I looked at some clickbait on uh, on the uh, uh, on the internet the other day. You know, ten things you need to be a writer <laughs> and persistence and blah blah. blah. But one of them's confidence. Mm. And I know a lot of people in this town. And I have a lot of friends in these towns. And I, I know some people who dislike me as well. But, but, you know, that's to be expected. It's, so it's this... So I have some confidence in myself and where I live and where I come back to. And you know what weightlifters say? They say... You can't lift a heavy weight in a canoe. Mm. And what they mean is, you got to have a solid base to put up that heavy weight. And I think this is my solid base. Oh, wow. Mm. That's great. I like that. You know, and I think a lot of that had to do with Gats, William Hort Hortzberg, because... I think that's really good insight. He was just that kind of guy. I mean, uh... I made arrangements to interview him for the for 56 counties, and he could not have been more. I'd never met him before, and he was just so eager to meet and talk about Livingston and his writing and, you know, whatever. He was open to whatever. He, he, was, he was a great conversationalist and just knew an amazing amount about everything. Yeah, plus and he funny. had that curiosity. He just was... He wasn't just one, wanting to talk about himself at all. I mean, he wanted to know about me and, you know. We, uh, after the Brodigan book came out, um, and that had been years in the making. And, right. Um, that was a huge book. <laughs> and, you know, it fell through with a different, couple of different publishers, and then finally it came together. And when it first came out, um, Bill Borneman at Bedrock Books invited him to come up and give a reading. Ah. And it was just one of the greatest afternoons Is in right? Helena history. He told all these hilarious stories about writers in Livingston and characters, including Brodigan, um, and just gave an awesome reading out of the book and told the story of how the book came together. And he was, you know, kind of even self-deprecating about his role in the, mm. you know, dropping the ball. And he said something like he got a $50,000 advance and burned through that and then had to call him and tell him, well, the book's not done. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was just a great afternoon. Yeah. And that is like one of the most thorough, comprehensive biographies, literary biographies you can imagine. Well, yeah, it's, it must be. I mean, it's over a thousand pages, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, he was uh, he was a force and just a super fun guy. Somebody that I think he really established the tone of that community in a lot of ways. Whereas I think in Missoula, because of the university, for better or for worse, and I'm an academic myself, so I feel like I can say this, I think academia tends to be real snobby and uh, limiting and sort of, you know, in and out. Yeah, it seems to sort of generate this atmosphere of competition that I don't feel in Livingston. I'm sure there's some of it there, but... um... I, it's just not as evident. I mean, when, when I've done readings there, the turnout has been amazing. And, you know, another thing I think that might be a factor is that most of the writers in Livingston are really well-established, successful. and That's true. You know, they they don't have anything to compete for. Right. Whereas in Missoula, I think a lot of the writers are up and coming. And, you know, it, it's the thing they say about academia is that the fighting is so vicious because the stakes are so small. Mm. <laughs> so small. That's good. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, um, Gats, um, and according to Tim, he moved out not too long after those guys did. And uh, this guy um, was on the ground floor of Rolling Stone magazine. He was one of the original writers for that magazine and then went on to help co found uh, Outside Magazine. What happened to me is that uh, there was uh, uh, there was this little startup magazine in San Francisco where I was at the time <laughs> called Rolling Stone. Mm. So you were in on the ground floor pretty much, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, they hired me to uh, do some work there, but I, I really had no idea how to do journalism. Oh, I wasn't a journalist. I was, I had an MFA in creative writing. Oh, I, did you? I was trying to be a creative writer. I had written novels. Uh, I'd written short stories, so I knew how to craft a story. I knew how to carpenter together right. scenes. I knew how to throw in dialogue. I knew how to use humor and, uh, and, and, and facts and uh, use emotion. Uh, and that's all I knew how to do. I didn't know how to report. Uh-huh. And it turned out that at that time, in the very late 60s, very early 70s, there was this new sort of journalism encroaching on the world of journalism. It was called the new journalism. Mm. And the new journalism used the techniques of fiction to, uh, to, to report stories. Um, so like Tom Wolfe? That's exactly like Tom mm-hmm. Wolfe. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And Tom Wolfe's book, The New Journalism, is a good example of, uh, of what I'm talking about. And I was doing that. Mm-hmm. I was writing the new journalism because I didn't know how to write the old journalism. <laughs> Nobody had to, you know, say you can make a scene out of this. Mm. You know, you can you can use dialogue. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, um, 
you can use the weather for effect. I mean, if something terrible happened on a dark and stormy day, fine, it's great. If something terrible happened on a bright, sunny day, it's ironic. Uh, you can use all these things <laughs> yeah. uh, that nobody was using. So that's... So your timing was perfect. <laughs> well, well, my timing was a matter of uh, luck. Right, know, just stepping, in the, yeah. stepping into it. Yeah. So how did it actually work? You were living in San Francisco and you met somebody at a bar or there was a job application or how did you hook up with them? It, was, it worked like this. I had a friend whose name is Jim Gorman who was a painter. That uh, painting over the television set, that's a Gorman. He did birds. Mm -hmm. And he said, Tim, I can't get anybody to publish my bird pictures. <laughs> I said, um, but you're a writer, and so you could um, you could write a story, and, and then we could use the, the bird pictures. And uh, I said, well, it's, it's terrible because I have ornithological dyslexia. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Oh, I know a bird. I know a bird I like. The vultures up on Mount Tamalpais, across uh, from right across the Golden Gate Bridge. I'd go hiking up there, and I'd lie down, and the birds would circle around, wondering whether I'm dead yet or not. And, you know, it was personally engineered bird watching. And I said, I got to write about those. <laughs> and he said, fine. And he drew some uh, turkey vultures. And that was the first nonfiction story that I ever wrote. Wow. And uh, it, You wrote uh, about that in there, didn't you? I, think I may have. I think you did. I no. may have. I can't remember. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I sat down and figured it out um, the other day. I have published four. I've been paid for and published about two million words. Mm. Wow. And wow. So... Occasionally, I don't remember a few of those <laughs> two million. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but see, so that was in the that story was in the um, San Francisco Sunday Chronicle Examiner mm -hmm. in their in their thing. In those days, everybody read the um, you know the magazine of the Chronicle was Examiner. Was that was Herb Kane in that part Herb, of it? Or? Herb Kane was the columnist for the Chronicle at the time. Yeah. But this was the magazine, the kind of slicker. Like came out on Sunday or something? Yeah, came yeah. out on Sunday. Yeah. And of course, everybody read them. And the editor kind of liked my story on vultures um, and uh, said, well, do something else. And so I did. Um, I'd been a swimmer in, in, uh, in high school and college and uh, you know, had a full ride at the University of Wisconsin to swim. Wow. So I knew about swimming. And there was a guy who had just won the Olympics down at Stanford. And I said, and I said, I can write a story about swimming. Mm. But because I knew about swimming, I knew in your most important races, you remember every second from mm. the time you leave until the time you hit the wall. Mm. So I interviewed this guy, um, and I said, what were you thinking? Mm -hmm. And I got everything that he thought, and it was all in his whole mind for the whole hundred meters. Wow. And I wrote it like that. And we, people who were doing the new journalism, 
were often criticized harshly by the real old, journalists. Old school guys. Old school guys who said, <laughs> how could you have written that? How did you know what he was thinking? Ah. Oh, yeah. Well, I asked him, and we <laughs> sat down for two days wow. getting this down. That's how I know what he was thinking. About 1975, the editor-publisher of uh, Rolling Stone wanted to start an outdoor magazine. Mm. Um, That's Werner? Uh, Jan Werner. Yeah. Jan. Um, and uh, I remember very clearly it was supposed to be an advertising vehicle for all these little companies that were starting in San Francisco at the time. Companies with names like Patagonia, ah. and North Face. Ah. They couldn't afford a big, uh, 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 a big ad in Rolling Stone. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's Columbia Records, uh, money, 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 the age of rock and roll decadence. But what if there was another magazine, a smaller magazine, that could be used as a vehicle for outdoor advertising. Mm. And uh, so Jan put together a, uh, a team, me. I was one of the f two people in the office that liked to go outdoors and liked to hike. Mm. Um, the other was Michael Rogers. And sort of looking after us was... Um, a woman who recently died, but a great friend of mine and a great editor named Harriet Fear. Mm -hmm. And Harriet said, you know, Jan, this whole idea of an advertising vehicle, it's not classy. Mm -hmm. And Jan said to Harriet, then you make it classy. And that's what Harriet did. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a really classy magazine. I remember when it came out. And I'm, no, I'm not an outdoors guy at all, but I remember that magazine was different. It was, it was. And right now, I mean, imagine to yourself uh, three young editors in an old coffee warehouse with every magazine that dealt with the outdoors to be, um, uh, to be consumed. And, uh, uh, you know, there was, well, canoeing. Told you how to canoe twelve times a year. Yeah, uh, you know it was mostly service oriented. Right. What we did and what sound it makes it sound so simple. It makes it sound like such a slam dunk. What we did is said, how about literate stories about mm -hmm. the out of doors? I mean, well written stories. So, um, uh, you know, because that's a lot of what American fiction is from. Uh, Fenimore Cooper, Hemingway, Faulkner, Mark Twain, um, uh, Melville. Right. You know, there's a great strain of great outdoor writing that runs through American literature, which was not being well served at that time by uh, sports uh, field and stuff. Like well, those 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 were hunting service magazines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we. We decided that we would not, uh, we wouldn't do hunting. Mm. Not so much that it was terribly disapproved of. It was just that the big three hunting magazines had that market. Mm. Right? Mm. So we would do non-motorized outdoor sports. Mm.
And these stories are unbelievable. I was completely um, surprised. Um, for one thing, the the title of the book, Jaguars Root My Flesh, is very misleading as far as what the tone, the tone of. of this book is. Yeah. You think it's going to be funny, and I always thought of Tim Cahill as kind of in the Carl Hyacin mode, you know, environmental funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is funny, but, you know, these stories are all also very serious and full of insight and not at all what I expected. So I was, I was really happy to read this book. He's a, he's a student of human behavior and also cultural behavior. I mean, yeah. these stories take place in different, completely different parts of the world. And each one of them explores that part of the world in a way that is not, I mean, he, like you said, he throws out a funny line now and then, but there's just a lot of incredible insights into this, um, each of these places where he visits. Yeah, it's, you know, anthropological. I mean, he's really Mm -hmm. kind of an anthropologist, um, but writing in kind of a more pop culture vein than an academic. Maybe that's why we like it. It's (laughs) Right. But also, you know, um, I was thinking about, I was looking at the date, and, you know, it came out in the 70s, so, or maybe the early 80s, and I was thinking about how uh, how much research went into these stories, and, you know, he had no Google. Right. <laughs> so, he spent a, a lot, lot of time, time in libraries. Exactly, yeah. Uh, or talking to people, or, and, you know, it also has to be mentioned that he almost died quite a few times. <laughs> I, I loved when we interviewed him and I, because, you know, I'd read that a couple of years ago, how he literally died. Right. But I, you know, so many of these stories are near death experiences. Yeah. And I wanted to ask him, you know, like, what is the one that right. was the most, you were the most scared? Right. That, that scene in Peru when they're on the ledge. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So they're on this ledge and um, it's nighttime is coming fast and they all their camping gear is below so they have to decide whether they're going to just camp on this ledge or they have a repelling rope and they could repel down this ledge to where their stuff is and they're just about ready to do that and tim has this thought of something he some advice he got right it's like if the if you can't if you're jumping further than you can land or right. i can't remember what it was but so he talked them out of it and then the next morning, they realized that when they got to the bottom, they measured how far it was, and it was 120 feet, and their rope was 80 feet. Yeah. <laughs> On the Colorado River, I got tossed out of the uh, tossed out of the boat at the top of the nastiest rapid, mm. Lava Falls, and uh, through a lot of swimming and stuff. I, um, I mean, I managed to, I was a swimmer. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. So I, I managed to get out of that thing, 250 yards of, you know, you, you look at it and you say, nobody could swim that. I thought maybe I could direct myself a little bit. And I did get out, and then I walked, but... I was underwater for so long, I took a lot mm. into my lungs. I got out, I sat down, and uh, somebody gave me a beer and I passed out. Mm. So I'm gone, but it was like, um, 
they they couldn't find a pulse. I wasn't mm. breathing. Mm. And they did CPR. Uh, but what those people saw was their friend die. Mm. And then they saw him come back to life. Mm. For them, it was a, many of them, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. For me, I felt like I just got knocked out. Mm. You know, I played high school football. We got knocked out all the time. <laughs> Coach, you know, there was no, back in those days, there was no concussion protocol. Oh, sure. <laughs> Coach yeah. just said, you got your bell wrong, boy, walk it off. <laughs> back in the next couple of plays. Yeah. So for me, it felt like I just got knocked out. Now you ask me, what was the one that scared me the most? Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that was in the Queen Charlotte Islands, uh, just on the border of Canada and Alaska, uh, about 50 miles out. Uh, it's a uh, sort of Canada's answers to the Galapagos. There's a lot of um, endemic species there that, you know, and things that exist nowhere else. Well, I went out there kayaking, and oh man, the kayaking was brilliant. There mm. were these stellar sea lions and just uh, uh, you know pods of killer whales coming by, and it was. But part of my story was to go into the interior and and find these orchids that grow nowhere else, mm. a certain kind of bear. Um, and nobody wanted to come with me. Now, I'm a fool. <laughs> I went out, and I, I had been on search and rescue here. I know what happens when you do stuff like that. <laughs> but I went out, and I looked around, and I took my notes, and I spent all day, and my friends were kayaking. And uh, I... Uh, I started, you have to imagine this uh, South Island, it's, uh, it's a high ridge with lots and lots of um, drainages coming off of it. And to move to camp, I had to go over these various drainages. Um, well, I was, to get Across the drainage, sometimes they're pretty wide, and sometimes the rivers are pretty fast. So you have to go up way up higher to cross the drainage and come back down. And at this one point, I said, I can get across the river here, but there's about a 10-foot cliff, and it's all moss. Mm. But I'll bet I can climb that. <laughs> and so I'm all by myself, and the moss is easily two feet uh, thick. So I had to plunge my hand through it, find a handhold, kick another thing with my foot and do it. I got to the top of the cliff and uh, I know what I held on to when I went up there. It was a, it was a long, inside the moss was a long, root of a tree. Mm. It felt very sturdy. So when I got up there, I got my feet on the thing and I reached for 
a small tree, which I'd be able to grab and pull myself over. Mm -hmm. And I recall reaching for the tree and seeing my hand just miss it mm -hmm. by inches and then start going down. Mm -hmm. And I felt myself turn around and now I was falling face first. Wow. And luckily, like I said, this must be the moss capital of the world, so I landed on my head in the moss, but uh, you can see this ah. here. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was in, uh, um, I just showed these guys a scar on my forehead from, <laughs> from falling. Um, and uh, I'm thinking, you know how when you take a fall and you kind of lie there for a minute and say, oh man, how bad is this? Mm -hmm. And here, quickly, like this, went through my head. This is bad. I don't even have to think about it. Mm -hmm. I know my back is bad. I know I, uh, I know I'm, you know, head wounds bleed, so I'm, yeah. you know, I'm covered with blood, and uh, and I thought, if I do not get up and move, I will never be found. I'm off trail in a temperate zone rainforest, mm -hmm. and I am wearing. Green rain gear, black irrigation boots. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so I'm green and black, the same colors of the forest. I will never be found. Mm. I must move now. Mm. And uh, th that, was, that was a moment of utter fear, um, which was immediately followed by, I got to do what I have to do. So I took off the bandana I was wearing and tied off the wound and tried to, uh, I thought, I'll just move down to the beach and I'll go on the beach. But my back was really bad, mm. really hurt. And I could not climb over the point of rocks at each um, intersection of the right. drainage and get into the other beach. And I thought, okay, I'll swim. Mm. So... But then I thought, what, in irrigation boots? No, no, that's not going to work. Okay, I'll take my boots off. But then what if you have to walk up? Okay, I'll swim it, side stroke, carrying my boots, which I did three times. Holy cow. And then it was starting to get dark. And I thought, oh, okay. I imagine my friends are looking for me. They'll be kayaking up and down the coast. What I'm going to do is build a fire. And uh, I had a Bic lighter. <laughs> Those things are amazing. Mm. You think, you, you swam three times and pulled a lighter out of your pocket? Yes, I did. Wow. You blow on the thing and you get the little fire started. So I had a little smoky fire starting to go when my kayaking friends uh, found wow. They found you, huh? Yeah. Holy cow. And how bad were you hurt? Um, I eventually had an operation on my back, oh. um, uh, what they call a double laminectomy, okay. uh, which was, uh, uh, it, it happened. Um, I thought I was getting better. And then I spent, you can ask people around here, 
I spent six months walking with a cane, looking like one of those little old Chinese guys in a mm -hmm. you know Ming Dynasty painting, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know you know where I was. I was at the uh, I was at the Book Passage uh, Writers Conference. There was a woman there who was thinking about. Uh, doing some writing because she had to go to all these foreign places and uh, with her husband because her husband was one of the foremost back surgeons on earth. Wow. Uh, and he just wrote me a little note and said, here, uh, I know what you got. Go see my, uh, my colleague in Billings. Wow. I called the guy in Billings and he said, come right in. I mean, today, so, an orthopedic surgeon who says, come right in today. I said, well, what, what's this about? He said, you were recommended by the guru. Mm. And then I thought to myself, well, the guru is in Minneapolis. Why don't I go there? And that's who operated on my back. So you want to read that one uh, little section from that? Um, one of the one of the things I really liked about a lot of these stories, um, you know, he's in what often in places we would call the third world, mm -hmm. and I think mm -hmm. the tendency of so many writers, including anthropologists, when they visit places like that, is you know fall into the myth of the noble savage. That, mm. um, you know, their lives are simpler and better somehow. And this story he wrote called The Reception at Bamaga, I really liked because it's sort of about television and Western culture, but it's, he does it in this really subtle, uh, effective way to contrast you know, television culture, say, with, with a native culture. So mm -hmm. I just want to read the beginning and the end of this. Mm -hmm. um, he says, many people on Thursday Island had already purchased their television sets. There was no station, no transmitter on the island when I was there in late 1981. That was still a year or two in the future. Nevertheless, dozens of families, the Malays, Japanese, Chinese, Melanesians, and Australians, had blank and useless electronic gods set up in their living rooms. Some spent entire evenings in front of the Sony worship altars they had constructed, praying apparently for the blessed advent of Starsky and Hutch reruns. <laughs> Um, and then this is just all about uh, uh, specifically Bamaga, and then he has this awesome line where he says, I suppose my objection to bringing television to remote parts of the world constitutes cultural arrogance. Who am I to deprive those in Bamaga of Charlie's Angels? <laughs> I mean, that's really subtle, and uh -huh. I think awesome. And then he ends with the real insight here. When he says, the people of Bamaga will learn more of the outside world. He's talking about when they do get television. Mm -hmm. The people of Bamaga will learn more of the outside world and will know less of their own. They will, sad to say, know more of us than we will ever know of them. Mm. And what I loved about that is that's applicable to every culture, including our own. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. That's the thing I loved about this book. He has so many of those little those insights that are, you know... Just far more than humor. He uh, he really, t um, like I said earlier, I guess, <clears throat> he's a student of 
human nature and and he also doesn't take himself real seriously yeah. like he's not a gearhead and i didn't you know i fully expected these stories because i knew a lot of them had been in outside magazine to be you know about bagging peaks or right. you know <laughs> my four days on everest or whatever and you know he does all that stuff but he does it in the way you or i would do it yeah you know it's just like a regular guy who ends up in these crazy situations and um, is able to translate those experiences to people who will never go to. I will never go to Bamaga. Or yeah, well, and part of the re- way that he makes it uh, so accessible is he he talks about how scared he is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like he's going uh, cave diving, right? Tunnel yeah. diving or whatever it is, where they're underwater, going through these tunnels, or um, gliding. Yeah, all those things that most of us will never try because we're too scared and he talks about it out of the place of absolute terror (laughs) yeah i love that it's so it's it it has a realism like yeah exactly and i in the interview i was pleased to learn also that you know outside magazine was not quite what i thought it was and that they purposely avoided the whole being an ad platform for gear yeah you know it was not about the the gear yeah it was way more focused on Exploring different parts of the world, yeah. <clears throat> and so I think the title you were you were saying the title came from a Frank Zappa record, and I think the title is a holdover from his days at Rolling Stone, like mm. when he was a music critic guy. And I love the explanation of the title too. Right. Yeah. He did it kind of as a joke, and it as stuck. A, yeah, and, as a play on the whole, all those adventure magazines that we used to read as kids, you know. And, <laughs> like um, sporting news and uh, yeah. So <clears throat> let's talk about Gatz's book, Falling Angel, which was made into a, a terrific movie with Robert De Niro and uh, Mickey Rourke called um, Angel Heart. Angel Heart, yeah. And I recently reread the the novel, and there are a few subtle differences, but I'm I'm kind of surprised how accurate they, they stayed, stayed pretty close to the, to the story yeah and i wonder i should have looked this up did he write the screenplay you know i'm not uh, sure i don't the the novel came out in 1978 which also seems mm. early uh the movie probably came out in the 90s uh, i would 80s. say more the 80s yeah because yeah. mickey rourke's face was still intact <laughs> <laughs> And he's he. That's one of his great roles. I it think. really was. He he was fabulous in that movie. Um, but the book itself is just a fabulous book. And having recently read a couple of detective crime novels by Alan Morris Jones mm. that I loved, I, I realized that that's kind of a trope for a lot of Montana writers. In Hugo, when we did Hugo, mm-hmm. you know, the Death and the Good Life, or uh, was that what it was? The, Death and the Good Life. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this opening couple of paragraphs of Falling Angel, I think, is some of the best noir ever. Mm. And I think it's interesting that his last novel, um, which I, the title of it I can't think of, The Mexican. But I would like to read this first couple of paragraphs, and it's, you know, it's like James Cain or somebody. Mm. It's mm-hmm. awesome, but a little more uh, literary. It was Friday the 13th, and yesterday's snowstorm lingered in the streets like a leftover curse. (laughs) The slush outside was ankle-deep. Across 7th Avenue, a treadmill parade of light-bulb headlines marched endlessly around Times Tower's terracotta facade. 
Hawaii is voted into union as 50th state. House grants final approval 232 to 89. Eisenhower's signature on bill assured. Hawaii, sweet land of pineapples and halaloki. Ukulele strumming, sunshine and surfs, grass skirts swaying in the tropical breeze. I spun my chair around and stared out at Times Square. The camels spectacular on the claridge puffed fat steam smoke rings out over the snarling traffic. The dapper gentleman on the sign, mouth frozen in a round O of perpetual surprise, was Broadway's harbinger of spring. Earlier in the week, teams of scaffold-hung painters transformed the smoker's dark winter Homburg and Chesterfield overcoat into seersucker and Panama straw. Not as poetic as the Capistrano swallows, but it got the message across. <laughs> My building was built before the turn of the century, a four-story brick pile held together with soot and pigeon dung. Mm. An Easter bonnet of billboards flourished on the roof, advertising flights to Miami and various brands of beer. There was a cigar store on the corner, a pocorino parlor, two hot dog stands, and the Rialto Theater mid-block. The entrance was tucked between a peep show bookshop and a novelty place. Show windows stacked with whoopee cushions and plastered dog turds. <laughs> it's just so gaths. I mean, I can hear him reading that. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, just how quickly he, like, gives us the time yeah. and the location and the, the mood. The details. And Friday, it was Friday the 13th. <laughs> and then the next chapter starts with 666 six, 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 right. Fifth Avenue. Yeah. You know, so after you've seen the movie or finished the book and you realize, you know, yeah. spoiler alert, you know, who Louis Cipher <laughs> right. is, you know, then you go back and read it and you're like, oh, you know, I should have figured this all out from the beginning. <laughs> Well, and of course, it's one of those stories, too, where even if you do figure that out early on... Um, it's still fascinating it's to see an, how it yeah. unfolds it all. Right. And it's exactly. the oldest, one of the oldest stories. You know, a guy sells his soul to the devil. Exactly, yeah. It's like Hitchcock said one time. He said, if mystery is when you don't know what's going to happen and suspense is when you know it's going to happen, but you're still intrigued anyway. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really liked this book a lot. And um, so, what was the name? Did the name we... of the last his last book was Manana, and it's it's similar in ways. It's also a detective story, mm -hmm. but it takes place in Mexico, and there's a lot of just zany, crazy stuff involved. But um, I I think of the two books as kind of bookends, mm -hmm. to, you know, to that style. Yeah, he. Uh, I saw him do a reading from Manana, and he he did mention that a lot of that was based on some of his own experiences yeah. down in Mexico. Oh, yeah, you Which is interesting. I also loved, he, he put out a book that uh, was not one of his more popular ones, but it was called Fables and Tales, or Tales and Fables, one or the other. And hmm. it was, um, well... Folk tales? Folk tales, yeah, but they were um, contemporary. Hmm. And that was, a, that was the first book I read by him, and I really loved that book. It was like... Like we were saying about Tim, um, they were funny, but they also had a lot of depth to them. Um, and he, you know, was he was all over book. the map, like Alp and Gray Matter. I mean, they're, yeah, they're pretty different books from what you... Yeah, he was, I think he was one of those guys who never got pigeonholed, which, you know, we all kind of would like to aspire to. And I think probably other than Falling Angel, um, I think he made his living mostly from writing screenplays. He did right? do a lot of screenplays, yeah. So in he fact, he told me an amazing story about, um, he wrote a, a screenplay for River Runs Through It. Wow. Yeah, he was hired to write that, and then the, then uh, Redford acquired the rights to it somehow, took it away from whoever had it, 
and he got shoved out of the project but um he said when the movie came out he was he saw it and he was like holy shit that's my screenplay (laughs) (laughs) so he had an opportunity later to uh ask uh, one of the producers who shall remain nameless um did you guys look at my screenplay for that and she said oh yeah we used it we used it (laughs) so he was pretty pissed actually and actually looked into doing a lawsuit but the lawyer said it probably wouldn't be worth the money. I've heard that that happens all the time yeah, in Hollywood exactly. and there's not much you can do. Right. Yeah, um, I think it's pretty interesting uh, the fact that uh, Livingston produces a lot of um, writers that have their own very distinct style and personality. Tim was, um, you know, su- such a nice guy. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um but very different from Gats, you know, not, yeah. as, not as gregarious, and um, he's, he's a much more thoughtful, serious guy. Yeah. And, um, um, and I think, really, if you, if you want a good introduction to the vast panoply of Livingston writers, you, you couldn't do better than read uh, his book on Browdigan, which mm. goes into a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of the early years down there in the 70s. and Right. Yeah, it was a fascinating time. A lot of stuff going on. And still going on. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Thanks again for joining us for Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is written and produced by Aaron Parrott and Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Breakfast in Montana would like to thank the Drum Lemon Institute and... Montana Arts Council for their generous support. Join us again next time.